Jeffrey Rosen is the president and chief executive officer of the National Constitution Center, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization whose mission is to educate the public about the U.S. Constitution. Rosen is also a professor at the George Washington University Law School and a contributing editor of The Atlantic. He is a highly regarded journalist whose essays and commentaries have appeared in the New York Times Magazine, on National Public Radio, in the New Republic, where he was the legal affairs editor, and The New Yorker, where he was a staff writer. Rosen is the author of six books, including, most recently, Conversations with RBG, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg on Life, Love, Liberty, and Law. Jeffrey Rosen, welcome to The Creative Process. Wonderful to be here. Um, you are the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center. You're also, you know, a writer, an educator, you're a journalist. But I was just interested in, you know, in terms of this is an educational initiative, and I think that so many of us, and certainly I, don't know enough about the Constitution. So why for you is the Constitution the greatest, I believe I, I heard you say it before, the greatest vision of human freedom ever provoked? The Constitution expresses the Enlightenment faith all human beings are born with natural rights that come from God or nature and not from government, and that it's the purpose of government to allow us to exercise our freedom. It's so rich and striking to see how the great thinkers who inspired the founders of the American Constitution, beginning with the Greek and Roman philosophers, Plato and Aristotle and the Stoics, uh, and then continued through the Enlightenment, really were philosophers of happiness. And they believed that we have a right and a duty to pursue happiness, not by feeling good, but by being good. It's a classical notion of happiness rooted in virtue and civic virtue. And it's both an individual and a political obligation. The individual obligation to pursue happiness is to master our perturbations of the mind, as Cicero put it, channeling Aristotle, anger, jealousy, and fear, so that we can be guided by reason rather than passion and serve others in the public good. And then constitutions are formed to allow us to do that at the political level and to be governed by reason rather than passion, to slow down deliberation so that hasty factions don't crystallize and threaten liberty and equality, and to ensure that government protects our natural rights rather than threatening them. It's an extraordinarily galvanizing vision. It's crucially important for personal and political happiness, and that's why it's so exciting to learn about the Constitution. I just have to say, I feel that, and this is a podcast so that people can't see, but as you're saying that, um, the sincerity and the passion, and I can, it really expresses as you are uh, I can understand why it's your life's mission, if I may say that, and why it was so important for not, you know, it's just those who, who are constitutional scholars or who, you know, drafted it. It's important for all of us. And I want to go back to something that you said, virtue, civic virtue. This is not an expression we, we often hear, and maybe we don't see it in evidence. Um, I would like to go a bit more into that. It's a challenging thing. I think that the founders of the, the uh, drafters of the Constitution felt it was something that that maybe they, it was the, anyone who was serving in government might naturally ascribe to it, but this is not the case we're finding that now. It's, it's, it's certainly not the case that uh, public officials are routinely practicing the classical virtues, and even the, the notion of virtue, the word 
has antiquarian feel. We don't use it often nowadays. And that's why it's so incredibly striking to realize how central it was to classical and enlightenment philosophy. But what did the framers mean by virtue? They were very much influenced by the Greeks and Romans, and they had in mind the classical virtues of temperance, prudence, courage, and justice, rather than the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. Maybe we think of virtue today as a explicitly religious or Christian notion. Uh, that was not what the framers were focused on. They were focused more on moderation, prudence, the habits of mind that would allow us to practice uh, kindness to others and to serve the public good. And then, as you say, the same virtues would ensure that our representatives in government were guided by reason rather than passion. I've just, uh, not too long ago, been delving into these classical sources, and they're hiding in plain sight. It's so striking that the Virginia Declaration of Rights of 1776, which inspired Thomas Jefferson when he wrote the Declaration of Independence, and also inspired James Madison when he wrote the Bill of Rights, actually lays out the four classical virtues, temperance, prudence, courage, and justice, as objects of government. The very reason that we create government is to allow individuals and public officials to be guided by these virtues. So why why should people care about this today? Well, because the founders are making not only a political, but a, a psychological claim. They're saying only when we practice this kind of self-mastery, self-restraint, overcoming of our perturbations of the mind, can we actually be happy as individuals? And can we allow happiness as a society. And there's all sorts of scientific data now to confirm the fact that when we temper our immediate impulses like anger or jealousy and fear and are guided by moderation, by the middle path, we're in fact likely empirically to be happier. So that's why we should care about virtue, not only because it's the right thing to do and it is the right way to treat others, but it, because in the long term, it will both make us happier as individuals and allow us to fulfill our potential, our creative potential. I, your wonderful project, which I've been so inspired to learn about, is uh, based on trying to unleash people's creative potential and allow each of us to be our best self. And that's what the founders, and that's what Plato and Aristotle, and that's what lots of wonderful thinkers that every era in history have believed that the habits of virtue allow us to do. They allow us to achieve our creative potential. Aristotle defined happiness, the, the Greek word is eudaimonia, as, which means well-being, as the pursuit of our unique unique excellence or virtue. And the idea is that each of us has some unique talent or path or calling that we can best serve by practicing habits of self-discipline and self-mastery. And, and, and habits are important. I'm a writer. I drive great uh, meaning out of that. And, and learning to, to write regularly, to, to, in my case, to get up early and write, say, from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. without interruptions, without browsing or surfing, you know, take, take some discipline, but that's the time that I can best express myself creatively and, and, and do that kind of creative work. And Benjamin Franklin, who was one of the uh, obviously great American framers, actually identified 13 virtues that he suggested that we follow. And he got it from Pythagoras's golden rule. He was reading the classical sources and was trying to figure out how we can, as he put it, achieve at a state of moral perfection. He said that was his goal. He said, I resolved as, as a young man to arrive at a state of moral perfection. And he has 13 virtues, including the classical ones like temperance and courage and humility and patience and uh, habits of the, of the mind 
mind like that. And he recommended that every day we kind of make a chart of these 13 virtues and put X's where we've fallen short. I've tried this. Of course, it's a very sobering and can be a rather depressing exercise because you fall short all the time. It's very hard to achieve moral perfection. But it's the effort to cultivate the habits that matters so much. So phrased that way, civic virtue is not some lofty, sanctimonious abstraction. It's not a sectarian goal. You can be religious or not religious. You can belong to any spiritual tradition or no spiritual tradition and embrace the habits of virtue. It's really an act of what Ralph Waldo Emerson, the great American philosopher, called uh, self, self-reliance, self-mastery, being our best self. I think that's so interesting. And for, and for us to, you know, query what is happiness and linking it to virtue. And also, I guess by extension, you're saying, I mean, the constitution, the laws, our collaboration. Happiness is also linked to a kind of collaboration that we will actually, and I think that there have been also psychological tests uh, relating to this, that we actually feel better in in the giving of happiness to others. It's it's a greater happiness almost. That is something that is linked to the creation of the constitution and maybe in their best form uh, to the laws that govern society um, is interesting. I think that that will bring in others that maybe feel a little bit I don't want to say alienated, but confused. It's complex. So tell us a little bit. I want to, you know, speak about, you know, your your life as a as a teacher, as a writer. It's like two conversations we try to fit into one. But tell us a little bit about the founding of the Constitution Center, its history and mission. It is exciting and it's wonderful to share the founding of this great uh, institution that I'm so lucky to work at. So the Constitution Center was founded by the U.S. Congress during the bicentennial of the Constitution in 1987. Uh, It was chartered in 1988. It's a private nonprofit, but it was created by Congress with an inspiring mission. And I love to recite it at the beginning of all of our podcasts and programs because it gears everyone up for the learning ahead. And the mission of the Constitution Center is to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis in order to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Imagine the U.S. Congress today creating a a nonpartisan educational institution. It's hard to imagine in a polarized time, but during this brief shining moment, uh, it was created, and it carries out this mission on a remarkable series of platforms. It's a beautiful museum of the U.S. Constitution on Independence Mall in Philadelphia, across from Independence Hall, with the greatest view of Independence Hall in America, and with statues of the framers and the rarest early drafts of the Constitution and exhibits on the Civil War and Reconstruction and women's equality and a live theater and interactive displays for kids. It's just this beautiful temple of the Constitution, which I hope anyone who is in Philadelphia can visit because we're, we're now open again um, during this challenging time. But our mission is carried out on a much broader platform, and that's online. And we have this amazing platform called the Interactive Constitution that I would love your listeners to check out at constitutioncenter.org. And on this platform, you can click on any provision of the U.S. Constitution, the First Amendment or the Preamble or the Fourth Amendment or whatever you like, and find the following amazing content. First, we have essays by America's leading liberal and conservative scholars describing what they agree about and what they disagree about. Imagine a thousand words about what the Second Amendment means that both the left and the right agree about. It's like a unanimous Supreme Court opinion. Then you have separate dissenting opinions or concurring opinions for every clause. Then you have the ability to explore early drafts of each of the provisions and see that an early draft of the 
14th Amendment, for example, which protects equal protection, would have protected African-American voting rights, although that provision fell out. And an early version of the First Amendment, for example, uh, would have applied against the states. Madison proposed an amendment that would have required the states as well as the federal governments to respect freedom of conscience, but that amendment didn't pass. So that ability to explore early drafts is wonderful. Then we have all of the podcasts and public programs and videos that we host about contemporary events. And I have the great fortune of every week calling up a, a leading liberal and conservative thinker to debate the constitutional issues from the, in the news, from can the president build the border wall to uh, most recently we just recorded this week's podcast on can he, by executive order, raise unemployment benefits or historical podcasts about the legacy of Frederick Douglass. It's just a thrilled to learn from these great thinkers and to share them through the wonderful podcast form. And our podcast is called We the People, and I hope people will check it out. And then finally, and this is the recent innovation that's just so meaningful, we've started offering live classes on the Constitution that are free. And I hope your listeners will check those out too. As soon as COVID hit, we just went online and some colleagues and I started teaching the Constitution three days a week. And we got 30,000 students uh, in middle, high school, and college students to sign up from March to July. And it was such a hit that we're going to launch again at the end of August throughout the term. The whole schedule is online at constitutioncenter.org, three, three days a week, uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, with guest lectures like Supreme Court justices. And I, you, you also are a teacher through your podcast, and you know how meaningful these platforms are. I, I just find it so meaningful to be able to have conversations about the constitutions with my colleagues, to take the questions of students via Zoom, and then to try to inspire people to learn more on their own. So that's what we do. And, and I am a teacher, as you said, and having the great fortune of being able to work with other teachers and educators at the Constitution Center and using these amazing online platforms to reach learners of all ages is so fulfilling. And that's why I am so lucky to be at the Constitution Center. That's so, I mean, and, and definitely explore those. And I found um, what I love about your center and then all these iterations online and uh, in the physical space is that you're really challenging visitors to think critically, to challenge their assumptions. I mean, you have things, as I understand, where students even who have not maybe um, a voting age can vote, but then you're also challenging their assumptions because so much of what sometimes what we learn is, is passed on is just, this is the way it is. And sometimes we're not invited to to think, why do I think that? Actually, is what actually what are what are my views on this? What is my responsibility in this? And so, um, not just voting, maybe how they had been, their family had voted, or how, what they might have been told, but to think about what the positions were, and and not to know we're not linked with the names, as I understand, of the of the presidents who made those statements, who you know supported this. I think we definitely need more of that, especially during election years where it's not just voting without thinking, or not just, just following what happened before. Absolutely. Um, and that opportunity or that discipline of separating your political from your constitutional views is something that we're trying to inspire everyone starting in middle school or earlier to do all the way up to adult learners. It's not an intuitive request. I, I teach constitutional law, and when I begin my constitutional law classes, I urge students to separate their political from their constitutional views. So what does that mean? Don't ask what you think the government should do, but what the constitution allows or forbids it to do. So for example, if we were talking about 
gun rights, a very controversial topic. The question wouldn't be, do you think gun control is a good or bad idea, but does the Constitution allow or forbid it? So you have the possibility in that debate or discussion that you might reach a constitutional conclusion that diverged from your political views. You might think gun control, to be concrete, banning assault rifles is an urgently important thing to do, and yet the Second Amendment forbids it, or you might think that banning assault weapons was a bad idea, but the Second Amendment allows it. And by putting policy questions through the constitutional lens, we elevate them above partisan politics. It's not enough just to do what your team says is the right answer. If you're a Republican, you can't just vote the Republican side. And likewise, if you're a Democrat, you have to think for yourself, as you put it. And also, you have to learn. You have to learn enough about the text, history, Supreme Court precedents, pragmatic arguments, philosophical background of all of these questions to have an informed decision. And that slows down deliberation. It makes you cultivate your faculties of reason. And also, it requires you to listen to arguments on the other side. You, you talked about the necessity of educating yourself by listening to diverse perspectives. It's far too easy, as we know, in this world of echo, echo chambers and filter bubbles and social media, just to hear your own pre-existing views reaffirmed. And that is what's leading to polarization and to a lot of very intemperate and polarized public discourse. You can't do that if you're a good constitutional lawyer, because there are generally good arguments on both sides of most constitutional questions. There are very few easy constitutional questions where the answer is clear. Can the president be 34 years old? No, that's an easy question, because the Constitution says the president has to be 35 years old. But short of a few questions that are clearly answered by the text, all the ones that are controversial, like can the president issue the executive orders involving unemployment or building the wall, or can he or she uh, repeal the Dreamers program without congressional authorization? Or can he create the program without congressional authorization? All of these questions are ones that there are good arguments on both sides. So it's a great way of learning the habits of civil dialogue. And among other things, we're really trying to achieve a couple of purposes with this education about the Constitution. First, to learn the substantive text, history, and principles involved, which is so important and so inspiring, but also just the habits of civil dialogue of how to disagree without being disagreeable, about listening thoughtfully to arguments on the other side before making up your mind. Uh, and that's why and another reason the whole uh, mission is so meaningful. So you have these great, you know, educational programs, and and I'm, I'm sure you have lots, lots of visiting programs with schools. What do you find that they, I guess you could differentiate by different age groups, but, you know, young people, when, when they visit your center, what are they engaging with? And then with the, the online interactive, what really excites them? You know, the ones that you find that they might like to pursue. How are you getting them in? What, what really is the turning point? Well, of course, as you say, people engage in different ways at different ages. For younger students and learners, just seeing those statues of the framers and touching them and sitting on their laps and relating to them as human beings is so powerful as the rap musical Hamilton shows. Just seeing Hamilton and connecting to him as a human being is really great. And the live theater is so inspiring. that We, we have a wonderful show called Freedom Rising where an actor tells the story of American freedom in 20 minutes and it's really great. But when it comes to online learning and, and to discussions about the Constitution generally, 
of course, you need a question that people can relate to their own lives. So there's no point in talking in the abstract about Fourth Amendment rights against unreasonable searches and seizures. You've got to say something like, can the school principal search your backpack if he suspects you might be carrying uh, ibuprofen, uh, non-prescription uh, non drugs, uh, which was a Supreme Court case where the Supreme Court, by lopsided margins, said, no, a school principal can't commit a strip search of a young girl in high school because he suspects that she has... Uh, prescription drugs hidden, if that's unreasonable and invasive. People can relate to that. Or can the government follow your movements on Google 24-7 uh, by reconstructing your movements, getting your cell phone records or, or tracking your browsing habits. People can relate to that too. So you start with a concrete case, then you can go back and read the text and then learn about the founding stories that inspired the principles of the amendment, like the writs of assistance that sparked the American Revolution and led to the prohibitions on unreasonable searches and seizures, and then related to questions the Supreme Court has decided throughout history, and then and then get back to the present. And throughout all this, we're having an interactive dialogue, and we often take votes before and after the discussion. And then afterward, we see whose mind has been changed based on the discussion, and whose mind has been open to the arguments on the other side. And even though, no matter how mind, many minds are changed, almost everyone's mind is open. Uh, so that's the best way to engage, just to, as you began in your great intro, to remind people that these questions are deeply relevant to their lives, to their happiness, to their freedom, to their status as active citizens, to their equality, to their dignity. And that's what uh, teaching and learning is all about. Constitutional reform or amendments, it's, it's necessarily slow. And that can be frustrating for those who are waiting for certain things to, to happen. Um, is another aim, you know, because not everyone can work on the Constitution. There, you know, another aim just also to engage people on a more civic level or see what changes they can make if it's not, you know, changing an amendment or adding because of those those things? Well, of course, we, we hope that people will be active citizens and will take responsibility for themselves and their government. We're not an advocacy organization, so we're not telling people, you know, to vote or not to vote or to take any partisan position whatsoever. But the hope of the framers was that by being educated about the Constitution, people would indeed become active, would become engaged in their communities, would argue for the vision of the Constitution they thought was best. If they want, if they felt that government was not protecting their liberties, they would have a right and duty to alter and abolish it. The right of revolution defined in the Declaration of Independence is an unalienable right, along with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And of course, uh, if, if people think that the current frame of government is not adequate to protecting their liberty, and their safety and happiness, then they have the opportunity and even the duty to try to persuade their fellow citizens to alter it through constitutional amendment, which is the general way that we uh, do things in the U.S. Or, or, or through legislation. And of course, if we come to a moment of constitutional crisis, which has only happened arguably twice before in American history, the revolution itself and the Civil War, although some would define it more broadly, then, then you could have a, a, an extra constitutional form of revolution. But active citizenship is a crucial goal. And I can't think that anyone who is inspired to learn about the Constitution wouldn't want to become engaged in our democracy. I'm Dahlia Haddad, a student at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and a collaborator with The Creative Process. 
I was incredibly excited to work on this episode. First, because Mr. Rosen is a professor at my university. Secondly, because I often find my view on the Constitution to be jaded or inherently political. And this episode shed more light on the complexity of the document and our relationship with it. In the past few minutes, the idea of active citizenship came up in conjunction with the notion that discussion and even debate has an end goal of opening minds rather than just changing them. I speak for myself, but I also think a lot of young people shared the experience of navigating their opinions as they change and the uncomfortable gray space that then exists. We compartmentalize things into a binary of correct thought or incorrect thought and dismiss the middle ground, which is opening your mind, as Mr. Rosen puts it. One of the realms in which I found this advice to be useful is when discussing what has become a constitutional question of a woman's right to have an abortion. When I was younger and would speak about this, I was so convinced that my stance as pro-choice was definitively correct. So any conversation I would have about the issue spiraled into you're wrong and a misogynist point in case. But as I've gotten older, tried to embrace more of the gray space. If this topic arises, I tend to lean more into the idea of whether or not you personally believe that having an abortion is sinful or human right. Does the legal framework we have in place as a country, the constitution, allow for this procedure to be banned? And that is the space where people's minds can open, if not even change. If the answer is yes, constitutionally it can be banned, and you are pro-choice, then the question falls to Mr. Rosen's later point of being an active citizen and harnessing your right to revolt against injustice, whether that means halting the passage of such restrictive legislation or working towards constitutional change. But the first question is about constitutionality, not about whose opinion is wrong or right. In that specific issue, the larger points of this interview are illuminated. Spaces which are nonpartisan and nonprofit, like the Constitution Center, can have at their core a genuine hope to engage people's critical thinking in a way that can translate to any issue brought about in this democracy. For those of you just joining us, Mia Funk of the Creative Process interviews Jeffrey Rosen, Chief Executive Officer of the Constitution Center, Professor of Law at the George Washington University, and author. Just to go back on how you uh, became so passionate about it, how it, it came, I mean, what were important teach? And then, of course, I want to discuss your books and why you chose, you've known some, known and written about, you know, amazing and important people. But just in, just in the beginning, you know, who were important teachers? Why, how did you get so excited about it yourself? Let's see, I have had the most magnificent teachers, the great fortune, one of the greatest fortunes of my fortunate life has been the extraordinary teachers that I've had starting in, at the very beginning, but in, middle school, high school in, in New York City, and then in college where I studied English and American literature and politics and, and really kindled to the great teachers of the humanities and of English and American literature in particular. And then I studied uh, politics and philosophy and economics, and then went on to law school where such magnificent teachers of constitutional law, many of whom I'm still friends with today and, and work with today, kindled this great interest in the Constitution. But in law school, I decided to become a journalist. In fact, uh, I had a great opportunity to write about law during a summer internship at the New Republic magazine when I was in law school. And it was the most exciting thing I'd done. Writing about the Supreme Court and the law for a general audience was felt like a calling and I wanted to pursue it. And through a great stroke of luck, I got the chance to go back to the New Republic magazine as their legal editor right out of law school. And that was an incredible break to be able to write about the law and the Constitution for a general audience was a kind of nirvana. I couldn't imagine anything more fulfilling. That experience, though, made me recall the thought that I had in law school of teaching as well as writing. And I began to teach and became a professor at, at GW Law School. And that combination of writing about the Constitution for general audiences as a journalist and teaching it was the basis for 
nearly 20 years of very happy career. And then out of the blue, the, the Constitution Center search firm called up and they were looking for a new head. And I initially wasn't interested because I love my job so much, but I took a flyer on them and they took a flyer on me and it turned out to be just as fulfilling as, as we've been discussing. It, it really brought together this sense that I had ever since I was in college that my, I had a mission to bring together literature and politics, language and government, and to try to work with people to inspire others to learn about it. I don't know where that calling came from, but it, I remember a moment in, in college in the library where I felt like that was my calling. And uh, I'm so lucky to have found these great platforms to be able to pursue it. And that is what I am uh, going to continue to devote my energies to. Well, I think it's so interesting. I'm so glad you brought that up and about your uh, foundation in uh, initially in the humanities and how that there, I mean, let's just say that these are beautifully written documents as well that are, I mean, in, in their complexities is a kind of literature. There's a balance and a harmony. Maybe I'm too liberal as I say that, but I, I feel that there must be a, almost a, a mathematical order as well, that kind of the structure. So yeah, the importance of the, the humanities is important because I think that some Sometimes, uh, unfortunately, in our education systems, uh, they, it seems like we're past beyond the, like, the golden age of the humanities education or the universal education where people are going to pre-professional schools. And sometimes this uh, foundation is um, lost, that period of discovery, yes. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I agree with you entirely. You were not too liberal at all. You're, these are beautifully crafted documents that channel universal, self-evident truths. The framers didn't, Jefferson is a gorgeous writer, but he said that he was simply collecting the common sense of uh, thinkers such as, and he named Aristotle, Cicero, Bacon, Locke, and other public philosophers. So it wasn't the originality of his ideas, but the felicity of expression, as, as John Adams said, that made the Declaration of Independence such an immortal document. And more generally, the, 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 the humanities teach us the best that has been known and thought, you know, that's the Matthew Arnold, but really how to live. I had a great great teacher in college, Walter Jackson Bate, the biographer of Samuel Johnson and great humanist, who thought the, the, the purpose of the humanities was to teach us how to live and to ask what can be put to use in the great poetry and philosophy and uh, novels of all times that can guide our life. And in this sense, the the classical notion of the humanities, you know, Shelley's defense of poetry is that it is a form of inculcating in us the habits of, of, of virtue in the sense of how to live properly, how to, how to be good people, how to, how to lead a good life, a, a beautiful life, a meaningful life, an empathetic life. Sure, the uh, novels and poetry give us joy because they're beautiful and pleasing, but it's instruction and delight, to use Homer's famous formulation. And I feel that on a daily basis. I, my wife and I write and read poetry together and read out loud. And there's so many wonderful ways to learn and read now from paper books to electronic books to audio books. And there's just an endless opportunity for bathing yourself in the humanities for every moment of the day that you can set aside for them. And it's, it's such a, not only a joy, but it's a spiritual opportunity for growth. I'm speaking now personally. My job is to be a missionary and evangelist for the Constitution, but but I uh, personally find that I uh, am an evangelist for the for the humanities for really broad reading in all disciplines, so that I can be a better person, hopefully, and live a better life. I think it's so. Um 
Interesting, because you, you mentioned Greece and uh, th those thinkers, those writers, and we have projects in Greece. And I, I felt, uh, and I'm in Paris here, so I guess we're s surrounded by a bit more history. But you know, what I was really impressed then going to to Greece because they seem so um, just the average citizen seems quite in touch and comfortable with the past. And it might just be the fact that even just in the names, I mean, that for me, it seems strange if you have contemporary names, their aunts could be Aphrodite or something. So it makes them think it's the past and the present is very, very equal, you know, and the, and the great pride in that. And I felt, um, which I also grew up uh, partially in America, um, that it, it's a shame that there's not a, a deeper connection. And I like that that's what you're doing with um, the National Constitution Center is just bringing us back into history and bringing history into the present too. It's so true. I, I had the great uh, fortune to go to Greece a few years ago for the first time, and, and you're absolutely right. And, and walking, of course, at the Parthenon or, or seeing the Temple of Poseidon, my goodness, that amazing sunset at the Temple of Poseidon and, and experiencing living history and the collapse of time. And that, that, of course, is one of the great insights of the ancients, that the time is now, that, that each moment is an eternity of time. And what exists is the present, which expresses all of the wisdom of the past and presages that of the future. So it's being surrounded by that history in Greece, in Rome, or my goodness, in Paris, how lucky you are. And I love France so much from my youthful studies and having, you know, traveled there as, as often as possible. It, that's the great pleasure of living in, in Europe. And then, of course, Europe has a much more lived sense of the classical past than we do in America. The, the American founders were deeply influenced by the Greek wisdom traditions, but and our architecture in Washington, D.C. And, and elsewhere reflects that. But you, you just kind of feel it on every street in Greece and Rome and, and Europe. So uh, lucky you. Thank you. But I feel very <laughs> lucky to, I'm going back and forth to America. Yeah. So I, I feel very lucky. And and I think I, I love also the energy and forward looking. And of course, many um, uh, scholars there who are perfectly at home in the past. I want to get onto your books because I, I wonder with someone who is, you're writing so many articles and now you know also producing podcasts how uh, I guess your your most recent publication I don't know if there's another book coming out soon but um conversations with uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg you know uh, and then that's just most recently but um how did you decide funneling down your journalism these are the people I want to write about well I'm a journalist so I can only write on deadline and usually only on assignment so most of my book topics were assigned. Brandeis was an amazing assignment from the Yale Jewish Lives series, which asked me to write about Brandeis, who I admired but not known very much about and became admiring acolyte of this great genius who has so inspired my thinking about the Constitution. Taft was another assignment from the American Presidents series. I delayed because I can only write on tight deadlines. And after learning that I was going to be the last book in the series, aside from President Obama, I buckled down and out of fear and pride set myself a six-month deadline and knocked the thing out. Brandeis was also written in six months because I, I, I can only write fast and with tight deadlines. And uh, Conversations with RBG is an act of devotion and gratitude. I, I had the amazing fortune of meeting Justice Ginsburg many years ago when I was a young law clerk on the U.S. Court of Appeals. We bonded over a shared love of opera and started up a, a conversation about music and law that culminated in a series of public conversations over the years. And I asked her a few years ago if I could collect the conversations in a book. And to my great gratitude, uh, she said yes. So I brought them together. And, and that was conversations with RBG. So it, it's kind of a coincidence that the last 
three books have involved Supreme Court justices, all of them. That wasn't entirely by choice. Uh, my earlier writings have been about privacy and technology and security and, and the Supreme Court and democracy. So I suppose there's a, obviously certain themes run through all of them. Oh, it's it's really um, a complete education if you're able to, to read at least a selection of these. I would like to ask on, on another level, I mean, beyond the law, which I know is hard to think about it, but I think, you know, I do get a, a sense of anxiety from young people and obviously, you know, from, you know, established artists and all these creative thinkers, but the people feel, people are very much aware of this doomsday clock, this, you know, reality we're living in. and. I feel sometimes like if we wait for, I mean, we feel a sense of responsibility. So if we wait for laws to be enacted or we wait for amendments, that maybe those changes will not happen in a timely manner. In terms of the things that are important to you or where you focus your interest beyond the law, what are some initiatives you're involved in or do you think are important? Well, I, I asked Justice Ginsburg a version of this question. You know, it's an important question, obviously. What, I asked her what her advice for my then 13-year-old boys was. She said a few important things. First, she always repeats the advice that her mother gave her, which is to master unproductive emotions like jealousy or fear. They're not productive and they can distract us from useful and productive work. And it's the ancient Stoic wisdom. It's extremely difficult to achieve. She achieves it more dazzlingly than almost anyone I've ever met. Her astonishing focus and self-discipline and refusal to be distracted from her path of pursuing justice and being a great justice is remarkable. So, so the, the first task is psychological or spiritual, whatever you want to call it. Achieve the self-mastery that will allow the hard work necessary to pursue a cause greater than yourself. So that's the second part of the advice that she gave, that with enough hard work and discipline, you can achieve anything you set your mind to. And that's an important part of the advice. You know, it's kind of may seem trite, or especially to, to young people, everyone tells you, work hard and you can achieve your dreams. But hard work is, is hard for a reason. It, it really, it's a daily, hourly effort to maintain those habits of self-discipline that will allow you to achieve great things. And then the third and most important part of her advice, or, or you know, as important as the rest of it, is work on behalf of a cause larger than yourself. She gave the example of, you know, gender equality or climate change. Those are two causes, but there are many other causes that people may be moved to pursue. And then you say, well, what if people are impatient and don't want to wait for laws? Well, her insight is great change, social change, has always come from the ground up. It really doesn't come from courts or judges imposing judicial victories out of thin air. It doesn't come from government laws that are just easily dispensed with or achieved. It comes from people organizing and persuading and agitating and changing hearts and minds. So that's an important thing to do. And it's that that's more than simply signing petitions or clicking like buttons or getting involved on social media. It really involves, if you want to change the world, you need to do a lot of hard organizational work and collaboration with others in order to think strategically about what levers of your government need to be touched in order to achieve change. So take the example of marriage equality and LGBTQ rights. That's a total transformation in our understanding of equality in an extremely short 
period of time over the scale of things. It may seem long to younger people, uh, but between 1986 and 2003, the U.S. Supreme Court totally changed its mind and having previously held that there was no right to privacy that protected a right of sexual intimacy for LGBTQ people, it then changed its mind in between 86 and 2003, less than uh, tw 20 years. And then scarcely 10 years later, it recognized a right of marriage equality. That was because of a lot of grassroots activism of state legislatures enacting marriage equality laws, of state courts recognizing marriage equality. And that all reflected a lot of organization and persuasion and also people getting to know, uh, people coming out. LGBTQ people coming out and so, so that everyone realized that they knew LGBTQ friends and family members and they were able to set aside their prejudices and em embrace what Justice Ginsburg calls a more embraceive constitution. That's her word and it's a very beautiful word of a constitution that embraces previously left out people, not just grudgingly, but with open arms. So so there, there's a mission for, for young people who are looking for a mission larger than themselves, which is so important because of course everyone tells you, well, follow your passion. Figuring out what that passion is may be hard for some people. You know, having a calling, not, 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 not everyone feels like they have a particular calling and know exactly what it is. Uh, so find something that really calls to you and that's unique to you. I, I, I had that. I still kind of shake my head at the at the fact that it happened, but I, I felt called in college to somehow, I didn't know how, unite literature and politics. You know, if you look for a, a calling like that, climate change and, and gender equality are deeply important. And if those call to you, they're urgently necessary. You know, uh, social justice achievements and saving the planet is something we, we all have a great interest in. But it doesn't have to be the largest questions. It might be something more specific, but it has to be something outside of yourself, not just your own ego-based interests, not just what amuses or diverts you in the present moment, but something larger that you can devote your life to serving. That's a beautiful, I mean, that really is uh, the specific virtues um, illustrated. So I hope that those listening will find something in that. I think they're finding their way, but it's it's so wonderful to be able to see it in, in others like yourself, um, Mr. Rosen, um, because you're embodying it and you have devoted your life to it. All these Supreme Court justices have devoted their lives and really it's not just a passion, it is a vocation. Right. So it takes discipline, but once you have that something that really is, is an endless source of curiosity, you actually won't feel tired. I don't, I don't think so, right? I'm so glad you said that. My mom, my beloved mom to whom I owe everything, used to say when I was a kid and I complained, I'm bored. And she said, if you're bored, it's your own fault. And I, that's profound advice. If you find a passion, an intellectual passion larger than yourself, and for me, it was reading at a young age, you can never be bored. And I, you know, I remember a, a trip to Morocco writing for a travel guide in college in a lonely, kind of pretty rough youth hostel somewhere far away in Morocco. And then I took out my books and didn't feel bored or scared anymore. So it's very meaningful to just come out of yourself. Books is one way of doing it. For me, it's also music, listening to great music. I love opera and vocal music, but really lots of forms of music just take you outside of yourself. And it's that task, going back to the founder's definition of happiness, setting aside your ego-based concerns, your jealousies, anxieties, angers, concerns about personal slights and inconveniences to connect to something larger. And that's what books do, the humanities do it, music does it, social justice does it, but any any great enterprise or discipline does it, science and the discovery of the, the laws of the universe or, or math or, or just anything that will help you set aside your ego and serve a, a larger cause is the Greek definition of 
the divine, because after all, Aristotle said it was the divine logos or reason that created the universe. And our task each day is to, by setting aside our ego-based concern, to connect to that divine reason or logos and therefore to merge with the eternal truths of the universe. I'm so glad that you said that too, about books being a source of companionship or being something that also guards against loneliness. But books are people, and as you say, your music, the music is not just notes, abstract, those are voices. Their documents are also, as you say, living documents. So the deeper you look, the more you'll find the people, the communities behind those and find its inner music. So I I want to thank you so much for what you've done at the center. Thank you, Jeffrey Rosen, for helping illuminate the Constitution as a living document, for illustrating also civic virtue as a road to happiness. And and the Constitution, as you say, is the greatest vision of human freedom ever provoked. And just everything that you do at the National Constitution Center to debate and celebrate the laws, ideas, and norms that shape our country, culture, and society. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you for having me, and thank you for all you're doing to inspire your listeners and students around the world to unleash their own creative process. It's really wonderful to talk. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interview producer on this podcast was Dahlia Haddad. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and Adelis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website www.creativeprocess.info want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews email us at team at creativeprocess.info